0: full body chills, no less than three times listening to today's guest share her story. I have no doubt that you will too. Joining me on the show is Brenna Huckabee, who was introduced to Paris snowboarding in 2013 after losing her right leg to cancer at age 14. She has since secured three World Championship medals and competed in the Paralympics in 2018, bringing home her first two gold medals. The 24 year old's impact continues off the slopes, breaking barriers as the first differently abled model to be featured in Sports Illustrated Swim. I've left a link so that you can see the behind the scenes from the shoot because it is incredible. Brenna is a role model, an advocate, and champions prioritizing mental health, positive body image, and the importance of family. In today's episode, she talks about navigating her cancer diagnosis and what that was like, finding snowboarding, and following her dreams as a young mama of two. She also shares how she felt seeing Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles Put their mental health first in their respective sports. I'm telling you, you will leave this episode feeling more empowered, less in your head about what you can and cannot do. I can't wait for you to get to meet her. Brenna, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. There's so much to dive into here. I would just love to hear from your perspective where your story started.
1: So I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and there's not a whole lot to do there so i found myself in love with gymnastics it gave me a place where i could just express myself um be active find friends and just a sense of purpose and As I did gymnastics, I started to dream bigger and where gymnastics could take me. And that was when I decided I wanted to be an LSU gymnast on scholarship, like the works. And that was my goal. And I was not going to stop until I got there. I dedicated all of my time. I missed birthday parties and school dances so that I could train for gymnastics. And I loved it. It wasn't a sacrifice. It was something that I got to do. And it was really exciting and special. Unfortunately, I had an injury in 2013, or at least that's what we thought. I developed a knee pain that I couldn't quite get over. I did a lot of ibuprofen. I stretched. I worked it out. I fought it. I finally went to the doctor a second time, and we demanded answers. We were like, why is this knee still hurting? And it didn't take them long to find the answers because on the x-ray, they found a large tumor that was later diagnosed as osteosarcoma bone cancer. So that was pretty much the end of my
0: gymnastics. (laughs) Wow. So, and you had continued to compete and, and work away at gymnastics, even though you had this leg pain or had you stopped gymnastics at that point? Yes. So that whole year when I was 13,
1: I was still training. I was still competing and traveling. I was doing really well. I was going to regional and national events, but the issue that I had was I could never straighten my back knee, which was my right knee. I would always get yelled at in the gym. I would always get deducted points because my back knee was always bent, but I was like straightening it as hard as I could. So I was like, you guys are lying. There's no way my knee is bent. And that was kind of when alarm bells started going off because why couldn't I straighten
0: my leg? I cannot imagine that moment of finding out. Do you remember it? I do remember. That's one of the few
1: memories that I have during that time. It's kind of blocked out, but I was with my mom who was a nursing student. So I remember just being in the doctor's office, had the x-ray on the screen and my mom and the doctor were both silent. And my mom was ghost white and she's an olive complected woman. So the fact she was ghost white was like, alarming, but they didn't tell me what was going on until I got home later that evening. So immediately I went into an MRI. And then later that evening, my mom explained to me why I had an MRI, what they had seen and what this could possibly
0: mean. Wow. So you're 13, but when you're 13, you're with it. Like, you know, what's going on. You understand what the C word means. Yeah. Well, you would think so. I, I was actually told I had a tumor,
1: and I didn't know what a tumor was. Honestly, that's I fair. Was like, that's yeah, fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then actually, I didn't know what cancer was. I had an idea of what cancer was because I knew friends that had leukemia, so I knew like, okay, you're going to lose your hair, you're going to throw up, but like that was the only world of cancer that I knew. So a bone cancer was like new territory. I didn't know the extremes of it. I didn't know like that I could lose my leg. It was. For a while, I was living in almost an okayness with the unknown, because had I had known the reality of what I was going to go through, I think I would have handled it very differently because I was pretty okay. I I went to school the next day. I told some friends that I had a tumor, whatever that means. And I went on living my life until I had to go to the actual hospital to get it diagnosed formally.
0: Wow. Okay. And so when they diagnosed it, what was the protocol? Was it immediately like we're going to have to remove your leg or we're going to do radiation chemo? What was the game plan?
1: With osteosarcoma, they like to try and do chemotherapy for nine rounds, which is a few months before they go into surgery. Um, And the goal is to shrink that tumor down. So, you know, they have to do less surgery. It's less invasive. Unfortunately, in my case, I started the chemotherapy immediately after we had diagnosed it as osteosarcoma, but my body could not handle it. My, like, I just was not recovering and my tumor had actually nearly doubled in size during my chemotherapy. So it was almost like we were feeding my tumor instead of killing it. Wow.
0: Okay. At
1: this point, had you started to lose your hair? Yeah. So I lost my hair probably a month into chemotherapy. I ended up shaving it with my best friend because it was just, you know, it was hard to like watch it fall out in clumps and it was just easier to be like, okay, I'm going to get rid of it on my terms. So me and my best friend did like
0: funky hairstyles and then shaved it all off. Wow. That's so cool that she did that with you and that with that, you had that person who was there in that moment. When did you find out that you were going to have to remove your leg?
1: So when you're diagnosed with osteosarcoma, they kind of tell you the plan. They're like, okay, you're going to do chemotherapy, a surgery, and then more chemotherapy. When I say a surgery, there are three types that you can get. You can save your leg and it's an internal prosthetic. Um, so you have a cosmetic leg that's your own, but it doesn't work quite as well as if it were a bone. You can't be very active on it. The other option is something called rotation plasty. So they cut your foot off, they cut your knee off, but then they take your foot and put it where your knee was so that you have a joint and a sense of control. And then the third option is just your standard amputation, which is what I have. And I had actually chosen to save my leg. I had chosen limb salvage because the thought of having a metal leg at that time and in our world was just unbelievable. I hadn't seen anybody in the media, and magazines, online, wherever doing the things that I wanted to do with a prosthetic leg. So it wasn't until we found my tumor had grown that both of the other two surgeries, the rotation plasty and the limb salvage were off the table and amputation was my safest choice.
0: I feel like one of the most important things when at any stage of life, but especially when we're younger is being able to see people doing and living life in some sort of way that that allows us to see ourselves living it in that way. And so as you said there there wasn't anybody. There was no social media. You you didn't have Amy Purdy and Jessica Quinn and these other women who were going to the Olympics and having families and living big beautiful full lives who had a prosthetic. So in that moment I can imagine that there would be times where you felt limited like this would put a cap on your ability to live a full life. How do you navigate that?
1: So, I mean, obviously it was very hard. When you finish chemotherapy, you get to ring this bell and it's like to signify, like you did it, you're finished. And it's supposed to be one of like the most beautiful days because you're done with, in theory, the most ruling time. And I remember ringing the bell and being struck with this reality that the life that I had fought for for the past year didn't exist. Like I didn't have my friends. I didn't have the same community. I didn't have my leg to do gymnastics, my goals, my sport, like literally everything that I had thought in my head I was fighting for didn't exist. And so I remember just being down, like, what do I do now? I've dedicated years and years and years to becoming a collegiate gymnast, but now that doesn't exist. And so I did go through a period of time where like, I was angry. I was hurt. I was sad. I was mad. I was everything in between. I would be in a wheelchair. I would use a motorized wheelchair because adapting to my prosthetic was just like so emotionally draining that I didn't want to do it. Heck, I probably still would be doing that today. I don't know until my mom was like, nope, we're getting rid of it. We're selling it we're giving it to somebody else. I don't remember what they did with it, but it was out of the house. And she was like, you're going to get your own dinner. You're going to make your own breakfast. Like you're going to get up and get your own water. And so she was forcing me to like wear my prosthetic and get used to it. And as I started doing small tasks on my own, I began to realize like, Oh, this isn't as bad as I thought. This isn't forever. Like I'm not stuck in this pattern. And I got a little dance Xbox things, the connect where you can like dance on it or whatever. Yeah. So I got that. And that was like my prosthetic training. I was like, if I can dance and do whatever movement these are, like I will be good. And then I slowly turned into walking in my backyard.
0: Eventually it just became my new normal. Oh, I got goosebumps and a little teary when you said that your mom took away your chair and told you you're going to get dinner. That could not have been easy for her. I mean, moms are amazing. Watching your daughter struggle, watching your daughter lose everything that she's passionate about. And then knowing somewhere deep down, I can't enable her to sit anymore. Like she has to live a normal life. I have to hold that space for her. Even though she's going to probably be pissed in moments, I'm going to do that. I think that having those people in our life that can see our potential and hold us to that is so important. Now, obviously you're the one who lost the leg and had to go through chemo and had to mentally find the strength to keep going and to practice all of these things day in and day out. It's a team effort as well. It really is. Okay, so you're starting to find your mobility and you're starting to find yourself in this new body because it's not just your leg that's missing. As you said, so much of your identity has been wiped out as in comparison to what it was before. How did you end up in the world of snowboarding?
1: I love that question because if you remember, I'm from Louisiana Yes, we have nothing but like good food, good music and alligators. So how did I get into snowboarding? So my hospital, they used to do this trip and they would take amputees or people who have lost like their mobility from cancer to Park City, Utah to learn how to ski. I, you know, I was invited. I was like, yes, I want to do it, but I really, really want to snowboard. It reminded me of a balance beam. So I was Mm. like, if I could just have a piece of my old life back, like, oh my goodness, what I wouldn't give. And so I had like begged and pleaded and they actually don't allow above the knee amputees to snowboard in a group setting for the first time. So they really didn't want to teach me how to snowboard because it's so hard for us to learn. And it's, we're so susceptible to injury because it's so difficult. I I remember telling my mom, I was like, I'm going to snowboard one way or or another. Like I'm going to convince them. And I did, I, I got to snowboard and I had tried a few sports before this experience. I had tried like swimming. I thought about diving. I tried like some water skiing stuff, soccer. And like nothing gave me that rush, that challenge, that drive, that gymnastics did until for the first time I strapped in on that snowboard, I just knew I stood up. I went like a foot down the mountain. I fell so hard, but I just knew like, (laughs) this is what I want to do. I remember like looking up at the mountain and seeing people just like flying down. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Not that I want to do that. Not only do I want to do that, but I'm going to do that.
0: Oh, I love it. You just knew it just clicked in. And now look at you. I mean, world champion three times, two times gold medalist training again for the Olympics. How long did it take you to transfer that dream you had for gymnastics and competing at a really high level over into snowboarding? Was that pretty instantaneous for you?
1: It was. So when I started snowboarding, it was not a Paralympic sport. They were talking about it becoming one, but they had just gotten turned down. I think it was probably like six months later, they had announced that it was going to be in Sochi and they had gotten in. And so I was like, oh, dang it. Cause I was still living in Louisiana. And then that kind of gave me the drive to be like, okay, well, how do I get there? How do I get to that point? And it took a lot of convincing. My parents, my mom who was on the trip with me, she saw what she likes to call like the light in my eye again when I was snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And so she knew what I was feeling just by watching me. And she knew that she wanted to give me more of that. So she told my dad, she was like, okay, this is crazy. You're not going to believe it. But like, I want to help Brenna snowboard in Utah. How can we make this happen?
0: (laughs) Goosebumps again.
1: I know. (laughs) And my dad was like, no, you're, you're insane. Like, how do we know this isn't just like a phase? She liked it once. Right. Which is valid. So she was like, okay, well you need to see it for yourself. So my dad flew me to park city, Utah for spring break that same year that for the first time. So this is my second ski trip and sold again, like in love, like did not want to leave. Like I just was like holding on to the snow, not wanting to leave, to go back to Louisiana. When we got back, my dad was like, Oh, I see it too. How do we make this happen? So what did they
0: do? I'm sitting on the edge of my seat right now. <laughs> did you move? Did you, did they leave? Did they sell everything? What happened? Yeah. So my, <laughs>
1: parents, they don't come from a lot of money. So it wasn't like something they could just easily be like, Oh, let's do it. But my mom had just finished nursing school and was like, well, you know, there's a nursing shortage. I'm sure I could get a nursing job. So it took about a year for them to like save up and plan and prep and get everything together. But a year later, my mom flew to Utah. She was like, okay, I don't know where I'm going to go, but like, I feel called to like bring Brenna here and help her. And things aligned really well. So in Utah, there was a woman who was from New Orleans, who lost their house in Katrina and bought a house in Salt Lake City. And they had a basement apartment available. Well, this woman, her daughter-in-law worked with my dad. And so like, we just made that connection and everything just literally fell into place. My mom went out like within a month, had a job and was like, okay, like if you want to come, come on and so this is probably like early march end of february that i transferred schools and moved to utah in the middle of my junior year and um
0: when snowboarding <laughs> what the hell is happening i love this story so much i mean not only was your family taking leaps you were taking leaps they took a really hard difficult situation where everybody could have sort of withered under the stress and i feel like rallied together you you have siblings I do. I have two older brothers. So did they stay and continue going to school?
1: Yes. So they were both in college, um, but it was still very hard, right? Like your mom and your sister just like up and left for like (laughs) this new life without them. So it was definitely hard, but I think they understood where I was and And they saw the benefit that this could give. And they were one of the few, because I remember people, they were like, you guys are nuts. Like, who does that? My aunt, I remember being like, what are we doing at Vicky? Like, everybody thinks we're crazy. And she just looked at me and she was like, so what if you are? You go. And if it doesn't work out, you come back
0: home. Like, whatever. And I was just like, you're right. (laughs) And all the people who are making comments are individuals who have had dreams themselves and likely have gotten in their heads about, I can't do this. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. The finances won't line up. (laughs) How will I ever get to the Olympics or how will I ever start the business? And so seeing somebody else live so boldly as to go after their dreams, and it's not just you, it's your family rallying behind you as well. It makes others uncomfortable Because they weren't able to do that for themselves. So it's not really about you. It's other people being like, what? That's not how this world is supposed to work. Oh, it's so inspiring. I mean, everyone who's listening right now, I want you to just push pause for a second and think about that dream that you have. Think about that thing that you imagine for yourself or that you would love to do. And most likely right behind that, a whole bunch of doubts and, you know, possibilities as to why it wouldn't work will, will come following behind. And then continue to listen to this story because, I mean, this is a girl who for sure you would have had doubts too in moments and questions and, and fear, but you did it anyways. And look how it turned out. Okay. On that note, let's talk about fear and self-doubt is that something that's part of your world or not? So much? Absolutely.
1: I'm a human, of course, <laughs> like everyone. Right. But a part of the story that I guess I kind of left out up until this point is when I made the decision, cause I was scared. Right. I'm like, what am I doing? I know deep down that this is what I want to do. Something is pulling me to this, but that's not always enough. And I remember telling my mom, I'm like, you know what? We're doing this because I don't want somebody else who's me right now, who's scared, who just lost their leg, just lost their life. I don't want them to stay here and not know what's possible. I want to be the one to show them, like, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Like you can get out and continue living your life, your dreams, your goal, whatever it is. If you choose, like you have that power. And so I held on to that with everything within me.
0: I mean, still to this day, You know what your mom did for you, you know, when I got goosebumps and a little bit teary, when I was like, she saw your potential and didn't let you rest in anything lower than that. You did that then for so many other women by moving past your own fears and holding on to that. You became a symbol of living boldly, of living to your highest potential, of not withering away or settling in, in doing that. Oh, love it. I love it. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So I'm curious to know when you go to compete at the Olympics, we've obviously just seen these incredible athletes that are competing. What's that like from a mental health perspective?
1: Do you mind if I backtrack a little bit to explain the pressure I was under?
0: Please tell us all, everything. I'm here for it. <laughs> okay.
1: So 2014, that was my first full season in Utah. Okay. I went to my first competition, was invited to go to world cups. Everything was going great. 2015, I was winning. That was my first world championship win. Everything was going great again. Well, end of 2015, I found out that I was five months pregnant. This was a major shock, not only because I've been competing pregnant, but also because I was told by numerous doctors, I was on birth control. I could not have kids. I was told I could not have kids because of one of the treatments that I had. It had just fried everything. I mean, I've had so many tests done and I somehow ended up pregnant.
0: You were on birth control and had been told that your body was not capable. How old were you at the time? I was 19. And the whole fam jam has uprooted and is there to support you in your dreams. And now you're pregnant. Yes. And I went back home to Louisiana. I wanted my family
1: support. I needed help. Right. I'm 19. I'm terrified. I don't like, what am I doing with my life? So I went back home. I gave birth and I remember talking to my mom and I'm crying, I'm falling. And I'm just like, I feel like gymnastics, losing gymnastics is happening all over again. I'm finally in the groove. I've got things going for me and something is coming in and taking it all away. And she just looked at me and my mom, like, she is such a strong woman. She just looked at me and was like, okay, what do you mean? You can't do that as a mom. I went back. She well, I haven't like who, I don't know any professional athletes that are moms that are out here crushing it. Like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, why don't you do that for your daughter? Like, we'll help you with childcare. We'll figure it out. Like, Let us help you, and I was like, okay, but I made the decision when this happened. I said, you know, two things one, I'm gonna show my daughter it doesn't matter what happens, you can live the life that you want, like you can go for these things, right? And two, if I'm gonna go for this, if I'm gonna leave my home and my family for months sometimes at a time, like it's a long time that you're on the road, I want to win. Like, I'm going (laughs) to win, right? Like, I'm not just playing around. So I go back to competing. I do 2017, and I have a very good season. Like, I won pretty much every race that I had entered. It was amazing. I attribute a lot of that to just my daughter, she gives you like a drive, like being a mom in sport. Like it was so underrated because it gives you a drive, like no other mm. going into the 2018 season where pressure's on the line. You have to qualify for the games. You have to like stay healthy, maintain, just, you have to be ready for this big event that you've been training four years for. And there's just a lot of pressure. And I put this immense pressure on myself to win because I felt like, If I didn't win, then all of the hard work, all of the sacrifices, everything was worth nothing. And I was worth nothing. It was a very disempowering mindset that kind of worked, but not as powerful as it should have or could have. I'm at the games. I qualified 2017. I had so many illnesses from stress. I lost most of my vision for a month from stress. Yes, that's a thing. And I competed like that. I had developed nodules, like these big red bumps down my leg that were painful, again, stress. And I had developed a cyst, like the size of a a golf ball on the side of my, my leg, my um, residual limb that I have left. And so wearing a prosthetic was extremely painful. And so the nodules and the eye thing had cleared up before the games, but the cyst on the side of my leg did not. Mm. So I could not wear my prosthetic when we were in the Olympic village the whole time because it hurt so bad. I was just in my head in training anytime that I was anywhere. I was nervous. I was scared because I had put this disempowering pressure on myself. Like if I didn't win, I was unworthy. I was undeserving. I was all of these negative things. And it just created pain in my life and disease and all this stuff. So I would love to say that it was just like an incredible motivating experience. But unfortunately, like it was hard and it funneled into my games and my competing. And I mean, I guess I'll just go into that story of being at the Paralympics and I'm finally in the race. I barely qualify. So I do snowboard cross and that was our first event. And in order to get into the heats where you race next to people, you have to qualify by your time. And I'm a pretty, typically a strong time trial person. Like I do really well in it at the games. I had fallen twice on both of my runs. So I was the bottom of the pack and I almost did not qualify into heats by less than a second because I kept falling, Wow! which has never happened to me. So I'm just like, Oh my goodness. So what happened because of this typically in normal races, like we all stack up pretty similar. So I usually end up racing my toughest competition for the gold medal, but at this games, because of how everything played out, where I had qualified last, I met my toughest competition first. And so I'm terrified. I'm like, I can't put together a snowboard run to save my life. And now I have to race my toughest competitor first. <laughs> and I'm at the bottom. It gets better. I'm at the bottom of the mountain and I look down and my snowboard's broken. So I have a broken snowboard. I can't put a run together and I'm meeting my toughest competitor first. Like I am a basket case. So I send my board
0: up and they, they were able to glue it together and fix it temporarily. Thank goodness. Still, I feel like you ideally have an operational board and for you, it's it's it maybe not as easy to get just a, a, a new board in place. Like, do you have something different on the, on your bindings? Yeah. So it, is, but I can't remember
1: what had happened specifically that I wasn't able to switch them out. So, cause typically I do have an- another,
0: a backup board.
1: Yes. But I don't remember if like I, they were slightly different. There was something different with them where I was like, I can't switch. Like I'm uncomfortable switching. I would rather fix this broken board.
0: <laughs> oh um, God. Brenna.
1: Yeah. Lesson learned, have better equipment. <laughs> But yeah, I was like, oh my goodness. So it's time to race. And luckily, and this played out in my favor, they had like a gate malfunction. Our racing gate had broken. The officials and everybody were trying to figure it out. So we had a long period of time between time trials and our heats. So I was able to kind of like settle my nerves a lot and my board was finally fixed. So I was in a better headspace, but still scared out of my mind. It's time, finally time to race. I get in the start gate. I'm nervous. I like going to throw up and I looked out into the mountains and like something had just come over me. Like, do you remember who you were just four years ago? Like, do you remember your life just four years ago and why you've been training for this moment? I have chills just saying that because in my head, I said for Lila, which is my daughter's name. And I was just like, it's for Lila. It's to show her, it's to show everybody what we're capable of in like instant calm instant ready. And I pulled out and I was able to win that heat, which was incredible.
0: (laughs) (gasps) Amazing. How do you, you said you settled your headspace a little bit. I feel like sometimes that waiting game can increase our nerves, but I feel like really remembering your why is what ultimately took it right down. And your why was something bigger than yourself. So you win that race knock out your toughest competitor and then give us the goods. What happens next?
1: Yeah. For the second race, I was feeling pretty confident because I wasn't racing somebody who like, Oh, cause we battle the first competitor. Like we battle constantly first and second, like it can go either way, but I had known like this next competitor that I was racing against, I typically, if I can stay on my board, I know that I've got this, right? Mm, So the pressure wasn't totally taken away because I have to perform, right? But it wasn't as nerve wracking because I knew that if I can stay on my board, I've got this. And so I did the same thing. Obviously, it worked the first time. Why wouldn't it work the second time? I remembered my why. I calmed down. I won the second race, which gave me the gold medal in snowboard cross.
0: Wow. Oh my God. You should be so, so, so proud of yourself. What if your thoughts been recently? There's been so much conversation in media with Naomi Osaka mm-hmm. and Simone Biles pulling out of whether it was for Naomi, the press conferences and um, Simone pulling out of competing at the Olympics in her in her team event. Thoughts on that?
1: Oh, I love this question because I mean, I have two perspectives for one. I'm like a weight is lifted off my chest as an athlete to be like, Oh my gosh, I'm allowed to prioritize myself. Like women who are in like the highest of highest of competition in the media, in everywhere, like, you know, their names and they were able to say, no, I'm not doing this. Like that just gives me permission to be like, Oh my goodness. Like I can step aside. Like I have competed on injuries that nobody should have competed on because you're indirectly and or directly told, like, you have to perform. You're here to perform. You got to go do it. And so I feel like we finally have like a voice, our own voice to be like, no, like this is unsafe. Because the thing with Simone is like, if you're not in, and this is the same with my sport as well. If you're not in a good headspace, like you could either seriously injure yourself or kill yourself and being able to say like, I know that I am not where I need to be. This is dangerous is so important and huge. And so like, I very much support it. And I mean, at the same time, like we train our minds, like we have sports psychs, we are doing everything that we can to train our minds just as much as our body, but our bodies give out, you know, sometimes our bodies just randomly give out. Why wouldn't our minds do the same? Like we're training as much as we can to be prepared. But not everything is going to be, you know, meet our preparation. And so, and there's so many things, so many things that could derail someone's mental game when it comes to sport. Like, we don't know the full story. we never may know the full story. But what we do know is we have permission now to say, this is dangerous. I need to not do this right now for my
0: body and my mind. You can, If you see it, you believe, you can be it. And so those girls in the same way that you've done for so many girls are sort of opening that door to say, this is an option. This is okay. Who gives an F what other people think about it? I'm putting myself first. You mentioned that you work with sports psychologists and as somebody who is not an athlete, I will probably never work with a sports psychologist, but I feel like the tools that you learn in there there are probably some that mirror those that I teach as a health and wellness coach around mindset that can be applied to anybody in their life, whether you're going in for that job interview or you're about to go into labor, you're pregnant and, and you know, going to deliver this baby, or maybe you're having a bad body image day and you just are feeling awful about yourself. What have you learned working with sports psychologists that could potentially be applied to anyone?
1: Oh, I love that. So yeah, absolutely. So a sports, like they help with your mental game for sport. Right. But I remember going into my therapist's office, my like regular therapist and being like, I know all of this. I know what you're going to say. Like, I know how to like take these tools and put them here and apply them because they do transfer. But sometimes I needed more. I needed more. Right. But when I healed that thing that I needed to heal those things, taking those tools from sport, it was so easy to apply to my life in every other area. One time I was doubting my accomplishments, doubting my ability, doubting like everything with sport. Like, what am I doing? I need to train harder. I need to work harder, whatever. My sports site had me write down everything that I'm good at in sport. Not what I'm bad at, not what I need to work on. Like, what am I good at? And like, just sit there. And it took me a few days to come up with things, which is insane. Cause you would think like, oh, I can do this, 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 this. No, it was like, oh, I could be better at this. Right. And so it took me a few days to do that. But now it's something I can do just like off the top of my head. Like I know what I'm good at. And like, that gives you the confidence to go for like the job interview, trying the new sport, trying the new, whatever. Like, it just gives you that ability to be like, oh, well I've done and can do X, Y, and Z, why can't I do
0: the next step? Oh, I love that. Everybody, again, pushing pause or taking a moment at some point to write a list of the things that you are good at. I start every one of my coaching calls off, we celebrate wins. And the reason that we do this is because as women, we're so damn good at looking at, all the things we could have done better or all the ways that we should have shown up differently or how there's so much more room for improvement. And so getting in that mindset of really identifying what you're good at. I loved it when you said, I'm good at staying on my board. You know, of course, you're snowboarding at fast paces. You can always fall. But one of the things that I'm good at is staying on my board and going quickly. You know that about yourself and that that's a strength. It's okay to own your strengths. As a woman, we've got to stop... Keeping that hush hush and silent and oh, you know, no, 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 identify your strengths and step into it. Own that shit. Share it on social. You can like cross things off if you don't want people to see it. But again, why wouldn't we want people to see it? Show the world, tell the world and tag Brenna and I on Instagram. We'll make sure her handle and our beauty talks handle tag it. We'll regram it. I want to celebrate all of your strengths and what you're good at. So show it. Love that, Brenna. I I mean, I honestly feel like we could sit here for three hours and continue to have a conversation because your story, as you've told it, it doesn't end. You've since had another beautiful little girl, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. And how old is she now? She's a year and a half. Okay. You're preparing for the 2022 Olympics, continuing to compete. If you could write an email that was going to land in the inbox of every woman's email and it was the last message that you could give the world, what would you tell women of the world?
1: So it doesn't matter what you accomplish. If you go for your goal and you do it or not, it doesn't matter because you are already whole and enough and deserving as you are right this second the beauty and the fun and the power and the confidence and all of those things comes from the process of getting to that goal. It doesn't come from the achievement of the goal itself. It comes from the learning and becoming and the growing of who you are from start to finish. That's what matters. And I just really want people to remember that and not beat yourself up one way or another, because you don't have control over every little thing in your life. Things change like life changes. I mean, look at the last two years we've been living in and you just really have to take time to celebrate those small wins in between or else you'll go crazy.
0: (laughs) Oh, I absolutely love that. You couldn't be more spot on. I'm going to share as well the link to the behind the scenes of Brenna's Sports Illustrated bathing suit shoot that she did. I'm so thrilled that Sports Illustrated is taking a turn to show a more diverse range of women compared to where we were five years ago with the swimsuit edition. But I want you to go see her behind the scenes. She looks absolutely stunning, rocking these empowering, gorgeous bikinis. You said in that in that shoot that it felt good to be sexy in front of a camera. What I loved about that was it wasn't about being sexy for men or sexy and sexualized, you could see your strength. Like there was some inner power coming through in those images that just reminded me that sexy is so much more than something that we are for other people.
1: Amen. I mean, it's a feeling, it's a belief. It's something that you have control over. It doesn't matter who thinks you look sexy or not. If you think you look sexy, then you're sexy, right? Like that's what
0: matters. That's where it comes from. Well, damn girl, you were putting off all the vibes. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was so wonderful to chat with you. And you better believe we'll be watching with <laughs> everything that you're doing and cheering you on from afar. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week.